Carnivorous couch, shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous couch with Brady and Rob. Hi everybody, hi everybody, hi everybody, and welcome to another edition of Carnivorous Couch, the spoiler-full podcast on which we just talk about a movie every week. Yeah, that's pretty much it. Yeah, I mean, the couch eats us, and uh, we talk about it. Yeah, that really happens. Spoilers are unforeseeable. So that other voice that you hear is our specialist guest. She's always our specialist, specialist guest. Uh, Her name is... Mm. Uh, my name is Tess. Her name is Swallow Tess. Well, I mean, she swallowed and then said her name when I said your name is. Uh. Ooh. Pick my ass again. <laughs> it's gonna be awkward. <laughs> Brady? I'll get you in another. What's headlock, your name, Brady? You asshole. <laughs> my name is Darby. <laughs> who and we also have Brady Larson, as per usual, and me, Rob Whiting, uh, who previously on this recorded tape you heard saying. I'm going to name my migraine a fucking cunt, and that fucking cunt's name is Rob Whiting. That was me that said that. Yeah, she said that. (laughs) Yeah, no, I was here. She said it. (laughs) So, we'll probably be editing a lot of this slack out of the podcast. Oh, no, just making sure the uh, levels are still good, because now everyone's talking at a different volume, different distance. But that's okay. That's okay. You shouldn't really test the levels during the podcast. Well, we tested them, but then you started doing different once we started podcasting so it's your fault for being dirty what (laughs) (laughs) first i swallow now i'm dirty what the fuck i'm gonna kill you cops are always trying to catch me riding dirty I think we're well on our way to worst podcast, but let's see if we can't do worse. <laughs> Look, right. we're we're merely setting the tone for the movie that we saw, which had a lot of horrible swearing and awful euphemisms. Yeah, Brady, why don't you say what movie we watched and give us a quick uh, something? Okay, uh, okay, let me make sure I have this right. Okay, yes, uh, this week we watched 2009's uh, British comedy satire *In the Loop*. Uh, it's from director Armando Iannucci. It's Armando Iannucci. And uh, he's most well known for working on a couple of very prominent British television shows. Like The this, Leopard? Not The Leopard, but uh, Steve Coogan's This Is Alan Partridge, hmm. a famous Steve Coogan character, and also The Thick of It, which actually draws a lot of its milieu and a couple of characters and a whole host of actors as well. Uh, yeah, uh, well, yeah, a lot of those actors on the thick of it contribute to In the Loop. The most prominent being this character of Malcolm Tucker, played by Peter Capaldi. He's the what, director of media communications or something for for the British government. He's basically their spin doctor. He's there to control every single bit of media content that might concern a government member. And so, yeah, uh, do we want to get into the plot synopsis? Yes. Yes, we should do that. <laughs> All right. Uh, you should do it. Though. Okay, l- let me see if I can. Okay, so the catalyst that kicks the the entire chain of events off is that on you know Downing Street in the political sector of London, 
we meet Malcolm Tucker, who's this media PR director. Oh, wait, I have a better idea. Why don't I yeah. do it and you fill it in? Okay. Because Let's I, try that. I, I understood very few things actually happening, although I was immensely enjoying this movie. So it's I'll very just say, funny. I'll just say the things that I saw happen. Okay. Okay, but one. Chronologically. This, yes. This guy, he's a minister for... The cabinet, I think. Yeah, he's, he's some kind minister. of interior minister. All right. Like a low level we'll call him cabinet minister. minister. Yeah. Don't know his name. Anyway, Simon Foster. Simon Foster. He says uh, that the war in is... In Iraq? No. They don't mention some it, war. Though, right? it's just It's just a they war. They don't mention it. It's, it's yeah. heavily implied we, to be the war We keep talking about the war. So the war is... What was the word he used? Unforeseeable. Unforeseeable, Unforeseeable yes. And then after that, he goes to a meeting... And he is just meat in the room, but he wants to be more. And so he says some things. We're also introduced to a couple other characters. One of them wrote a paper that's been introduced by her boss, saying she wrote it, uh, which is a paper kind of saying war is a bad idea. And then uh, they go to Washington, D.C. And his aide, who's now with him, sleeps with uh, the chick who wrote the paper, which is just kind of just side melodrama. It doesn't necessarily have to do with driving the plot forward or anything like that. I mean, on the fact that he breaks up with his girlfriend subsequently afterwards because she finds out. But anyway, uh, people keep saying this paper's bad. We also meet this general. This stuff happens. <laughs> Other things happen. And oh my uh, God. then at the end, the guy who was in the first scene gets sacked by the dude who says, look, you're never going to come back from this. So that's the movie. And Brady, <laughs> why don't you make you it a little more not, detailed? You could not have... A, a more flawed telling of this okay. story. I mean, that's that's just... what I that's what I were gathered. You, were you paying from... attention? I mean, yeah, but I was just mostly enjoying the dialogue scene for scene. It's very funny, and like I noticed that you were laughing, so you were clearly paying attention. But God, like, could could you have a, a, a less involved understanding of this movie well, right now? I felt that it was so in love with you know its writing and all that that what was going on wasn't entirely clear. Yes. Oh, here. I'll I'll try to clear it up. Okay, so... And I'll try to be as brief as I can. And also, Brady's seen this movie how many times? Oh, I've seen it probably maybe as much as ten this times This my now. second okay. and so a half So if you've seen time. this ten times, I could gather knowing this much uh, is going on. But just me seeing it the once didn't really gather the nuances of the plot. I just found it hilarious. You know, I mean, the thing... I, and that's important, I think, because what, what's important at the end of the day is that all the pieces of the plot are there. I think that would reflect poorly on the movie if it wasn't. I can say, having seen it as many times as I have, that you know all the pieces do add up, and it's very dense, which is nice because when I... Uh, a, a reviewer I like made this same comment about the Magnetic Field 69 Love Songs album, uh, and it's this idea of it's really nice when something has so much going on that you kind of get a different take every time you watch it or listen mm -hmm. to it. You kind of get j just lost. You enjoy just being lost in this dense tapestry of, of words or music or whatever it is for the art form. But uh, that's something I really like about this movie is the pieces are all in play, but Rob's right. It's more than anything, I think, about luxuriating in this uh, this caustic, expletive-laden and we're definitely going to get to that after the plot synopsis because we've all got a lot to say on I that. I was going to because he made All right, well, let me do the thing, plot synopsis. Yeah. Okay. Plot synopsis. So, what happens is, yeah, the media director, the guy in charge of PR for the British government, it's his job every morning to listen to tapes, see what government officials have said. And so, this minister, Simon Foster, has gone on to a radio show 
And not in the guise of talking about the war. He's been brought on to talk about, I think, foreign aid issues. He's uh, involved in some way. He mentions way. diarrhea several times, which yes. elicits a lot of swears from Malcolm Tucker. Yeah, no, Tucker's upset because basically this guy is a stammering boob. He's kind of a mid-level, underachieving politician. And he accidentally gets goaded into making a comment on... Wait, Warren, what's his name again? Simon Foster. Uh and so he gets goaded into making a comment about the war in Iraq, even though that's not what they're there for. And it's never actually mentioned that it's Iraq, but heavily implied. Hmm. And so, yeah, he says that the war is unforeseeable, which is, <laughs> you know, a, a big statement on the potential for political action. Yeah, in politics, that means something different than what it means. Yeah, and, and like, like to me, terms. like, when I, the first time I saw this um, movie, I've seen it two and a half times now. Um, the first time I saw it, that made no sense to me until they were trying to explain it away where, you know, you actually have the scene where they're going like, yes, it is foreseeable. And then I went, oh, right, I see. And then they're trying to use him like as a political chip to sort of say, no, there shouldn't be a war. Yeah, different key players and then from America. It, it, once, once that starts to happen, I sort of started to understand why that was a big deal. But at the very start of it, it just seemed like so inconsequential. Like, yeah, he said that the war is unforeseeable. Like, what the fuck does that mean? And then once it becomes clear that like they they want to use that one little thing that he said to use him as somebody that sort of exists to say, oh, war is bad, <laughs> like we shouldn't go to war, then it sort of made sense why that was a big deal. Right. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so so that happens. Yeah, the uh, the other uh, <laughs> plot that kind of filters into this is we're following a young uh, a young politico, polywonk, whatever they call them, a uh, young British guy coming into the department on his first day, and he essentially hooks up with the Tucker character and gets him into this meeting, which actually also involves the war. I believe the assistant secretary of state is over from Washington. And so essentially it's good to think of the Iraq war when we're talking about all this because – we're basically in that time period of right before all that all happened mm -hmm. and different so players. So this was are made in what to, year? Well, this was made in 2009. All right, so nowhere but near take, the Iraq war. It takes place but it takes in place like two, what, 2002, 2001. Did they say when it takes I, place? I don't know if they mentioned the I, year. I think it's, it's just kind of contextually yeah, like it, placed there. Yeah, that's what it's about. It was There's no real iPhones. There's no iPhones. Nobody has an iPhone, but yeah, the no fact so that it's before iPhone. the fact that nobody has an iPhone never really plays a part in a lot of movies. Yeah, that's true. Anyway, no, I'm just saying it dates it. Not necessarily. If you don't see anyone using anything, then you don't know what they have. Well, they all had cell phones. They just didn't okay. have iPhones, so we know it's post cell phone, pre iPhone. Sure. Okay. If somebody would have an iPhone, right? <laughs> Well, or a this is or opening like a can of worms for me, and I just don't want to get into that right now. Okay, anyway, uh, plot synopsis. Oh, thank you. I would love to. Okay, <laughs> so so at this point, he, you know, he makes another boneheaded comment and ends up trying to backpedal but just digs his grave deeper when the media tries to confront him again outside of the you know Secretary of State's meeting because she's come to England to meet. He says, uh, well, you know, I didn't totally mean that. And he says this thing about climbing the mountain of conflict. So essentially he gives a soundbite to both sides of this warring equation over whether or not they should go to war. So yeah, as Tess says, he's being used as a chip by both sides. And so that also lands him in hot water with Tucker. But Tucker basically decides 
to send him over as an ambassador of sorts to Washington to meet with the secretaries of state and to kind of talk about mm-hmm. yeah talk about all that <laughs> and so I mean basically the movie is just this build up to all these little mistakes and happenings uh, leading up to eventually you know the Iraq and the Iraq war taking place and also you know to political careers either, either dying or being radically changed mm-hmm. you know I mean at the end of the day I think what I like about this that enables me to kind of have my cake and eat it too is like you say, Rob, the big thing is the writing is like whip crack funny, like super, super sharp. But I like that it's suffused with sadness because basically at the end of the day, people are either fired, their careers are dead, or in order to keep their careers, they've been forced to completely scrap any principles they had. Only Tucker gets to keep his principles. Tucker and this character, Linton Barrick, who's basically our antagonist, the guy pushing for war in Washington. But you, I feel like you kind of get the sense that Tucker doesn't really have principles in the same sense that other characters do like they th- some people seem to have hard and fast ideas about what their principles are whereas right. like Tucker maybe doesn't really like whatever his principles are his principles seem to be like I'm a badass and as long as I can maintain that idea of me everything is going to be running smoothly which has a lot to do with one of my favorite scenes that I just realized, but you know, we can talk about that later. <laughs> well, but I think something I find interesting though, is the movie doesn't underline it too strongly, but I knew you were going to do that. The Tucker arc, I think has a bit of sadness to it too. I, and I think what's sad is Tucker himself might no. not even know it is he basically gets shamed when he's meeting with the Barrett character, you know, close to the end of the movie when, you know, they're at the UN and, the decision is going to be made, go to war or don't go to war. And the Barrett character basically manipulates him and he kind of shames him in front of his staff. And that, you know, you're, you're powerless because this other event that goes on that basically sinks Foster's career is that the British government or his government is so incompetent that they can't even deal with problems literally in their own backyard. Their backyard wall of their, one of their offices uh. is falling into a neighbor's yard. And so the Barrett character shames Tucker and says, like, oh, yeah, like, you're obviously inconsequential, which this movie has a ball, like a field day with this idea of, like, you know, maybe these American people are evil, but, God, the British government is just completely inconsequential. They're, you know, they come to Washington and have big meetings, and then they go home and deal with lighting problems and electricity problems at their office. We're picking you up on our instruments. Yes, you're coming in nice oh. on the tuba. <laughs> Uh, so, right, right. so basically what happens at the end is... Tone it down, you're British. Tucker... <laughs> hold, on, hold on. What happens is Sorry. at the end of the day, Tucker ends up faking this information, faking an informant, which basically is a parallel to you know the faked weapons of mass destruction. And so I think wow. what's sad in the Tucker arc is that because of what happens when Barrick shames him, he basically says, like, oh, yeah, you think I'm, like, just someone stooge? Like, I'll show you by being your stooge. <laughs> like, so even he doesn't get to have a complete victory because he plays exactly into the hand of our one bad guy. Okay, but strictly yeah. events that happen, we're done with that? Right. Well, are we what? done with the plot synopsis? Yeah, yeah. Right. So that's the, okay. that's the plot synopsis. I mean, we, we can talk about it more as we talk about it. I mean, I think for a film like this, the plot doesn't matter so much. Actually, so very little happens. 
right? Well, a lot well, happens. A lot, a lot happens, but I think you're right in a way in that um, the kind of things that are happening feel very trivial because of the way that they're presented. Well, well here, you could have a movie like this where uh, you could, okay, say you took this movie and then you did a movie afterwards and before of it, of the series of events. Mm. Uh, the events themselves aren't really the point. Well, they kind of are, actually. They they have a lot to do with it. I mean, I I, mean obviously it, it's very funny and it's a very dense script with a lot of dialogue and that's going to play a part in the way that you perceive I, I think it. My but point then, you know, is, the plot is important, too. It, it's it important obviously has to be. in the terms of expositing to us this world, right? But, I mean, like... Um, the far-reaching implications of the events that occur in the film aren't really realized. We don't get shots of ordinary citizens uh, reacting to it. We actually don't really get shots of people outside well, the direct oh, pool of yeah, characters not about reacting them at all. to it. The, the, point, yeah, yeah. the point is that you are in the loop. Right. Like, the, the people that you are interacting with have their own world that they are dealing with, and it has very little do very little to do with what normal people are encountering. Right. It, in it doesn't have very far-reaching implications. It's it's yeah. tiny well, no, it does, in it, terms of it, what they're dealing with, but then yes, it does have far it does have far-reaching implications, but they're not ones that are like important. They're, to... they're not shown in the plot of the film. No, no, they are, they are. The far-reaching implications are well. I mean, the far-reaching implications I think are mm -hmm. this movie is a satire of the emptiness of political life. Yes. So the, right. So hold on, hold on. But the far in the plot of the film, meaning right, what happens from the start of the credits to the end. Yeah, let me finish because I was about to speak. Okay. Let me finish, please. Okay. I just so, want to make sure we're clear on what I said. Can I finish? You'll find out when I open my mouth. Okay. <laughs> the the far-reaching implication I think is that most of the careers in this movie, most of the characters we follow. Either their careers are completely raised, completely obliterated, like Simon Foster's, or they've had to change their position, change who they are so much. That happens with the uh, Eliza Weld character, the young girl who was my girl, actually, back yeah, in the 90s. that's the one thing it says on the back of the box. It says she was in My Girl. Yeah, and she it's like, wow. Main character wow. in My Girl. <laughs> and so, like, she's, like, completely flipped to the Barrett character side, where she was with the peace-loving uh, woman side, Karen Clark. Uh, the general, who we really like, played guy by uh, James Gandolfini, completely yeah. like buries his own principles and is like, well, now that there's a war, I'm just totally going to support the war. So basically, people either have to resign, their careers are burned, or they change so much that they're not who they were. So the far-reaching Im implication is that like there's really no nobility in the entire process. It's just survive or don't survive. Okay, what I was talking about was far-reaching in the terms of that it reaches non-political citizens outside of this loop. Well, the, actually there, really but then there is that because the end of it is we go to in war the, in Iraq. But I, shown yeah, no, in no, the I, plot of the film. That's we go I'm, to war in Iraq at the end of the film. We don't see the war in Iraq in the plot of the film. That's you, what you I was saying. You know that they do, but then since they never say... That, I, I'm actually agreeing with you, Rob, um, in that... Yeah, you never you never see that, but then I don't think that's important to the f to what the film is saying. About but it's government. important enough that they support that's it with language, because the Foster saying. character says, you know, they support it with language. Yeah, they do cut off at that point, but the Foster character says, you know, has a little foreshadowing, like we're gonna kill people, our children are gonna die because right. of this. All I said was that the far-reaching implications of what's going on in this closed society are not realized in the course of the plot of the film. Oh yeah, no, it cuts off. Because we know what happens. We know the history. 
and that history is the Iraq War. Right. It's just not part of the plot of the film. That's oh, no. all I was saying. No, yeah, it's right. just so about... That, like, so everything that does happen in the film is kind of completely related to uh, the characters in the film, and therefore, and so forth and so on. We don't really talk about the public outside of this group. We don't even hardly see them. I, I think the you most we see them is some like fat dude who goes like yeah, enough with the cursing, eh? And he goes shut the fuck up, you fuck. No, no, no. He says <laughs> lick my like fucking balls, balls, you fat, fat fuck. fuck, and then he yes. runs away. Runs <laughs> away. Um, but like, yeah, no, but uh, and then I think that I just think it's a you're, notable. You're making point. you're making a notable point, but then I also think that the point of the film itself is not to touch on that. The point is the the way that's th the notable part. the point that. The point is that the, the 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 interdepartmental shit that goes on and like just the government grappling with this is so far removed from the way that any normal person would handle it or want to be, you know, told about it in any kind of way. So it's just it's it's a whole lot of bureaucratic bullshit about something that affects everybody greatly. And they're handling but it's all about them. It's not, yeah, it's not about it a, the people. They're handling That's, it yeah. in a way that is like all politics yeah. and all bullshit. Yeah. No, they're all maneuvering one person to this place. Your career's they're done. Just, my career. My, oh, this could end my career. They're just driving yeah. to the city they for only, some bullshit. That's right. all they're doing. <laughs> Which is... Like, you said it more coherently than I did, but that's what I was trying to say. It's like, in the plot of this film, what these people do... Well, in reality, it's kind of a big deal. Because it determines, like, you know, James Gandolfini's yeah. character when he's sitting there, he's just like, 12,000 troops we have deployed for this. Yeah, 12. And, it, and, and then she's like, 12? He's, like, he's like, yeah, 12. No, 12,000. And then she's like, oh, well, is that enough? And he goes, no, no, no. 12,000 are going to have to die. We need more troops after that. You know, they're just talking so casually to each other in a child's room, by the way. Yes. Oh, wow. Who is a member very, of that public, poignant. but, you know, very poignantly absent. Yeah, no, the far-reaching implications of the actions of He's this closed loop are oh not God. realized in the plot of the film. Rob, he's literally I think you just made doing, the case. He's literally doing math to find out how many troops they need to just be there in a child's room on a child's like computer. Yeah, thing you just made the like, case, oh man. Oh my because, God, that's right. so the real crazy. world implications are always in the background. And in fact, like. I, this they're not realizing the plot of this film. That, but that was but my they point, are. Their absence. Yeah, they, they, they are. And that's... that's I the think point that's of the film is the triviality of all this and how people shift so much that nothing means anything anymore. And it's almost... It reminds me almost of like Fellini's La Dolce Vita where it's... The point is how silly and trivial all these people are with their mm -hmm. pretensions. A absolutely. And I mean, like, the, this the is just absence, high school. The absence is the school. mention. Really. Yeah. Politics is as petty as any high school on the planet. Right. I have a lot of disdain for politics to give a, uh, you know, kind of anybody who doesn't know me personally doesn't know that that's true. I'll just fill you in. I have a lot of disdain for politics. But your disdains for your disdain for politics should actually like really warm you up to this film because it well, does, yeah. it, it has a lot of disdain for politics. And yes. The fact that it doesn't show the way that it affects normal people. It's just like look at the way these people are carrying on and how bullshit it is and you don't get to see the way it affects anybody, but then we all know the way that it affects everybody because we we are that, and we're 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 getting a look inside just the complete fucking stupidity that is the way the government works, and how it decides everything that happens to us. Yeah, our good guys are all burned pretty quickly. I mean, 
even though it takes a while for Foster to fall till the end of the film, from the very beginning, you can see that he's this waffling figure who just has a justification for literally anything. You know, I think of that scene kind of late into the film where he's been he's been talking the entire film about, well, I can use the threat of resignation to really, you know, improve my position. Once it becomes a reality that, okay, well, how about you do that? You know, the Gandolfini character, Karen Clark, want him to do it. His aide is talking to him about it. And when it becomes a reality, he's like, well, actually, maybe the really heroic thing is to mm. do what just helps me, eh? And, like, he has these just empty, just yeah. so transparent justifications for everything. I actually wanted to mention something that you, you, you mentioned earlier about how, you know, when you watch this movie more than once, you start to pick up on things that you didn't notice. And one of the things that I noticed was how hilarious that character is. Like, Oh, what, uh, yeah. What, like, uh, as an actor, he is so funny. And, like, the first time I saw it like I was just like watching um Peter Capaldi be Malcolm Tucker and going oh my god he's so funny all like he's swearing at everybody and yelling at them and then all of a sudden I was watching it this time and going oh my god that wh what's his name something Foster Simon Foster. So, Simon Foster is like so fucking funny he's so hysterical and like in his moments where he's just looking at somebody else and going like i'm an idiot you're an idiot <laughs> like when he's in when he's encountering someone that is being a bigger idiot than he is like he's absolutely hysterical <laughs> so so is this movie about the um do you think it's about the actors or about the writing uh i think it's both uh both I mean, it's it's totally a script-based movie. Uh, but the thing that's nice is, you know, anytime I hear criticism, uh, I mean, this movie is pretty widely praised, but any criticism I hear is, you know, like, oh, well, like, is it a bit too television-y in its directing? And when I, I was really focusing on that this time, and the answer is yes, but not enough to be a problem. You know, like, I, I'll, I'll say, you know, it doesn't have the cinematographic verve of... Uh, Dr. Strangelove, if we want to bring up something this film's like. Actually, um, well, I don't want to interrupt you. you can oh, no, go ahead. Um, I was just going to say, like, uh, when you mentioned uh, it being a lot like television, um, I automatically saw, thought of Sidney Lumet, who, or Lumet, I don't Lumet. know how you, yeah, Lumet. Um, Sidney Lumet, who worked largely in television and then did a lot of very, very awesome uh Films actually, uh, what didn't he do? Failsafe was that him? Yeah, that's him. Yes, Failsafe, Parallax um, View, and he did the um, the angry twelve angry, 12 angry, 12 men. angry men. Um, and then the 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 film, like his ability to work with television, actually was incorporated very well in yeah, his very ability much done to in, work with in this wide shots. And, let's get yes, more than one character yes. in the shot. This let's just actually kind of show focus. Very, very let's do filmically zoom lens. Let's, yeah, like yeah. reminded me a lot of him now that you mention it. It's very much like a three camera production uh, 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 in certain. Exactly. Scenes. So uh, I, I think that that's more of a strength and that you can't, you can't just say, Oh, well it looks like television. Yeah, you know, let's because not cut. <laughs> let's do this. The, it, it's actually like a really, Excellent way to way. cut, and it's a and it's a really interesting way to show that kind of a story too. Like I yeah, think I, it works really I, well for. The I mean, story. I think this is touching on the thing that I was making the point outside before we started the podcast. Right? I was talking about like this is kind of very like 
a British stylized version of Sorkin, yeah, which you is mentioning mm-hmm. that. which is that you know this is very much about the writing. It's very TV. It's kind of trying to um, you know a lot of the. Oh wait, he's the West Wing guy, right? Yes, he yep. did the West West Wing, but I, again, oh, when I, I think know. of Sorkin, I think of his earlier films. We were listing them outside. A few good men. A few good men is is very Sorkin and. Uh, American, American President, President, which is my mom's favorite movie. But I mean, like, th- those kind of early works of his are very, um, um, like, I'm not, I'm not going to be all Sorkin. I'll be Sorkin during a few select scenes and so forth. But anyway, that's a different kind of discussion. The, th- the thing that I was bringing around to is that this movie is, is very much like that. It's very much about the writing. Um, and it might kind of fall into the same pitfall of Sorkin, which is, Sometimes it's so enamored with the writing of the particular scene and the particular interchange between the people that unless you watch it multiple times like Brady has, you're not going to get the entire plot the first time. Because you're like, I was just totally tied it's into that. I just said, like, it's very, it's very fast, almost like Howard Hawks fast and his girl Friday where right. it's overlapped dialogue to it's make screw- it. It is screwball. Yeah, There's a is, very exactly. screwball-esque yeah. quality and, to and it. That's the thing that sort of falls into. British comedies often are that way too, though. Like, I, I but, think. Right. It's the British version fast. of Sorkin. They're very, now, there's a the lot thing. of dialogue that you need to take in at one time. Even, even in the scenes with the American characters, the like thing. you're getting a whole lot of information all at one time. Yeah, but here's the thing with that is that Sorkin, um, kind of his plot lines are trivialized by that style. But for the most part, what Sorkin writes is uh, a lot of melodrama, like in recent things like The Network and so forth and so on. And the events... Uh, is that the Jeff Daniels you, you thing? This, yes. Wait, what? The Network? What is that? The Newsroom. Uh, newsroom, I'm sorry. Oh, Newsroom. Oh, that's a pretty good show. Right. I, I like that show. And West Wing. But, I mean, like... Um, it feels like the West Wing. The scenes and the interchanges that are in, like, the newsroom where it's kind of trivialized because it's melodrama and so, for, so forth, there forth, and so on. Um, if you don't understand exactly what's going on, but you do understand just by the emotions being displayed that this chick is pissed at that dude, well, that's a pretty trivial event, and as long as you got that much, you can kind of move forward with it. I think that me focusing on, oh, that guy just said a fucking hilarious line. I'm going to fill a septic tank with sewage, then make you drown in it because you have pissed me off. Um, or something like that. I'm so enamored by the stylistic writing and yeah. the writer showing off with how colorful his language can be that I'm not really taking in the plot line. And that that was my problem with it. And it's probably because it's the first time I've seen it. And I'm, I'm Brady's probably more intelligent than me at digesting film. But I imagine that he didn't get all the understanding of the plot line that he has now after watching it ten or so times on the first viewing. Oh, yeah. It's, it's a dense film. Uh, uh, absolutely. Especially for a film as brief as, as it is. It's only like 100 minutes or so. Brevity uh, yeah, it's, it the felt soul long. of wit. Uh, oh, really? It feels yeah. like a breeze to me. Uh, to oh, me, no. To it me, it feels like about so 210. Quick. No uh, way! No. It's, yeah. it, feels it, like it, it feels like it feels like ninety me. minutes to me. Yeah, ninety minutes. But it's well, okay. It felt two ten to me. It's uh, it's actually a hundred. But oh, well, there you go. Because <laughs> like for me, mostly like I like mean, not two hundred ten minutes. Two hours and ten minutes, which would be one thirty. It right, felt like one thirty to me. Like what makes this great to me is that the actual comedy never stops. But at the end of the day, we're a film review site, so we're trying to look to the integrity. And so it's it's more important to me just in an integrity kind of way that all the plots are there if you're looking carefully enough. If you look carefully enough, everything's supported, the plot works. Um, But it's also just fun to just enjoy just the actual 
energy of the thing. It's one of the most energetic productions of recent years. One of the things that that I think is that I do want to say, you know, this movie does deserve more than one watch. And part of it is because, yeah, the first time I saw it, you know, I was like obsessed with Peter Capaldi and I was like looking at it for the humor. And my secondary concern was knowing what was going on you know I'm like watching this woman bleed from the mouth and going ah that's pretty funny and like you know watching people's interactions uh and this um second and a half time that I saw it uh I was actually picking up lots of pieces of the plot so I think it definitely does this is a movie that definitely deserves like two looks at least at least I think what we're saying right now is actually probably best uh tied into our segment called Hey, How Do We Like It? So we're going to be right back with that segment in a second here. All right. Hey, 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 how do we like it? Tess, how did you like it? I loved it. I actually really love this movie. Um, Peter Capaldi is hilarious. Also, if you didn't know, he's going to be the 12th Doctor. And he always wanted to be the 12th Doctor, but I'm afraid they're going to make him lose his accent. So, um, in order to stop me from just talking about Doctor Who, uh, I'm just going to say that I really love this movie. I love Peter Capaldi, and I love much of the supporting cast, including um, James Gandolfini and many other of the actors in it. Don't throw food at me, Rob. Brady, letter grade? A. Tess, letter grade? A. Rob gives it a B minus. B minus, <laughs> damn. Well, I mean, on first viewing, that grade could very easily change on further viewing. My problem with it was it was so enamored with its writing style and um, kind of just the characters that it had created that uh, it didn't really allow you to digest the plot or kind of show the plot in any any sort of uh, uh, kind of cohesive way. It was it was something that was there and it was present. And I'm sure I will be able to pick it out you know, in further viewing, but I don't think I can give this one an A until I've seen it multiple times because I don't think it means that much to anybody on a single viewing. Uh, fair enough. I mean, I think if if you go back and rewatch it, you'll find that all the pieces are there. In fact, not only are they I mean, there, I loved it. Like, it was great that I loved it, and I was totally entertained and enjoyed it. Just, I don't really know what happened. I just know it was hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Uh, Basically, what happened is we went to war in Iraq. <laughs> That's basically what happened. You could definitely make a case for that being what was going on. It doesn't come out and say it explicitly. No, yeah, it doesn't we, say when it is. It doesn't say what they're talking about. It it's just a, is. It's a case where going to war in a foreign country is predicated on what we gather to be very faulty information. How many people died in Iraq? Twelve thousand. Uh, I don't know what the number is. I mean, currently. like uh, of American soldiers. I mean, it's it might be getting close to that. I don't, I don't think it's anywhere near that, is it? Oh, I don't know. I don't know. Okay. I I'm just I'm just throwing a little shoehorn in there to say, hey, wouldn't they say the actual number if? Uh, no, because the number's always changing. All right. I just don't think it was necessarily about the Iraq War or necessarily about any particular time. I think it was just about the way governments do things. Yeah, no, it, it just uses that as an entry point. And, and it's a good entry point because it's current and 
you know, has a corruption angle to it. So it works. Okay. And and also because also one other thing I should say, keeping in mind this is a British director, is Tony Blair earned a bad reputation for being viewed as kind of being bullied or kind of cronying up to the American government. And so this movie has deals a lot with the themes of like England, no matter what government official we're talking about, is small time compared to America. And so it kind of plays with the inferiority complex of this smaller country with its smaller problems, its crumbling garden Absolutely. walls. That could also apply to the war in Afghanistan, too. So. Uh, oh, did England get involved in Afghanistan? Well, I mean, they were involved so much as they were involved they by did. supporting the UN. <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. I mean, everybody was involved. The Afghanistan thing, everybody was like, oh, that's fine. Uh, the people who bombed them are hanging out in Afghanistan. They're going to go get them. I don't think we can stop America from doing that. So Right. Mm-hmm. So everybody was kind of involved in the sense that UN forces carried out the thing in Afghanistan and that we landed forces instead of the RAF and other people. Mm-hmm. So anyway, yes, no, I totally agree with it's kind of shining a light on that particular time period. I just don't think that there's anything that specifically speaks out to the Iraq war. It's. I think it's just clearly. It's heavily implied to be that kind of a thing. It's. It doesn't even matter if it's Iraq. It, it's. It goes great lengths to not say it's that. Yeah, and you know that's and that's a pretty standard book in the satire. You know, the trick in the satire book is. You well, know, we don't want to come out and say this, but clearly we have a target in mind. Mm-hmm. I think it's just important for your longevity, your rewatchability. And and you're applying your message to the uh, ubiquity of the entire um, operation, as opposed to ju- like by not specifically stating what you're doing, this film is now relevant forever, as opposed to yeah. just in relation to that one thing. Yeah, it's no, you're right. And that's the reason that I'm harping on this point and saying like, look, they don't say Iraq War. They, okay, yeah, no, I I agree, and and it's for the better. Yeah, I I agree, I agree with that. But, you know, another part of me also wants to say, if I really want to say what I love the most about this movie, and I think it's great satire, but talking too much about the plot to me at times almost feels like getting too heavily into the plot of a movie like Singing in the Rain. Because what this movie is really about for me is just verbal pyrotechnics and executed by really great actors. Right. It's It's about the writing and the acting. But it's not necessarily about the plot or what happens. It's but just the plot's there, I so that the it's not... That we're here to entertain you. That you took away from it, the dialogue and, like, that kind of information over the actual plot, like, speaks a lot for what a first-time viewer is going to take away from it, which is, it's really funny, and it has a really, like, lightning-fast dialogue in it, but what the plot is doing is, I'm not going to say less important, but... Uh, the specifics of it aren't as important. It's not the point. Right. The the execution is the point. Um, and I mean, it it really stands in okay when you can con- uh, when you compare it to things that are similar, like for instance Howard Hawks, um, his girl Friday, right? Well, it did have a very screwball quality to yeah. it. Yeah. Screwball quality, fast dialogue. Also, um, more important maybe. On another side of it, a satirical and cynical view of politicians in general uh, mm-hmm. would relate to I mean probably the original British House of Cards but I haven't seen it so I can't comment on that but I have seen the new Netflix series House of Cards which is um, which is kind of 
dealing with the same sort of cynical view, but in a much deeper and darker way and executing it in a way that it very much is about the plot and what happens and like how horrible these people are and so forth and so on, as opposed to uh, just the execution and the silliness of it all. Um, But see, I don't want to go too far in that direction because what happens at the end of this movie is like devastatingly sad. I'm just drawing parallels to other. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I I do want you to get back to that point, but not immediately. I was going to say House of Cards is very cynical based on, like, look how horrible these people are. Look how, like, uh, look how fucked up the system is and that people are really out for themselves. Definitely in the conversation. Shit about anybody else. There was a little bit of that in this, but it was more like these people are all boobs. They're all, <laughs> like, they're all portraying uh, maybe not the jock in high school, but somebody you could probably take any one of these characters and then go like i knew a guy like that in high school and i mean it's just interesting to me that i feel like uh these are less than fully matured adults and i, I mean i think that's intentional yeah, they're, they're petty well yeah and they're <laughs> it's just they're not real people they're not like you and me <laughs> Like, you and me are people who actually have feelings about things and want to do things as opposed to well, just just operating themselves based on uh, whatever modus operandi they can actually accomplish things through. But, you know, th- like Simon Foster says loudly and repeatedly that he believes heavily in not going to war. He's scared about what it'll do to his soul, to his conscience, if he has to send children off to die. So I don't think that the stake... I don't think that screwball might be going too far if we're saying that we're becoming detached from any kind of consequence. I think this movie is suffused with consequence. Well, I mean, Simon Foster definitely fits into my high school parable because he's definitely sort of a fop. He's this guy who, yeah, maybe he has, like, ideals and this and that, but he's not really capable of executing anything properly, period. Right, yeah. And that's the point at the end. It's just, yeah, allegiances shift all over the place so much that nothing means anything anyway by the time we're all done. And, you know, most of the people that we come to know, their careers are sunk. And we're still going to war as well. <laughs> right. Yeah, no, it all doesn't mean anything. Everybody's just mean... It, it's kind of like uh, when they're singing Mickey Mouse at the end of the Kubrick's uh, Full Metal Jacket. It's, mm-hmm. it, uh, wars are started by politicians who don't have to die for it, and they're fought by generals who don't have to die for it. And then there's all these people just kind of Mickey Mousing along and doing the exact same motion just going through the motions to, to go with the sound effects as a as the parable mm-hmm. that's what mickey mousing is by the way okay when like you have a repetitive motion and then you have a repetitive sound effect but interesting so let's go uh do our understudy yeah sounds good all right be right back all right we're so sorry we couldn't get the actors to do the scene from this screenplay But we've got two understudies And to be honest They're probably more famous anyway So try to catch the actors Try to guess the movies Tweet us at C-A-R-N-Y Couch This game called Understudy Is happening, happening, happening Right now Afibulai Not hard to find you just follow the chaos. Uh, Lilu, listen to me. These tickets, they're not mine. I mean, they are, but not for vacation like everyone thinks. I'm on an operation, and 
If I didn't come get you, you'd be in a shitload of trouble. I'd love to be on vacation with you, but now, now I've got to work. And Lilu, I would love to work in peace. Love? Yes, but love isn't the operative word here. Peace is. Peace and love. Sometimes you can't learn everything from a screen. Sometimes it's better to ask someone who has experience. What is make love? No, you know what? Uh, on that subject, maybe you'd be better off asking the screen. Okay. Finished. Finished what? Learning language. Uh, with which one? All 900. You learn 900 languages in five minutes? Yes. Now it's your turn. I learned language. Now you have to learn mine. I know how to say hello. Teach me how to say goodbye. That's all I need. A peepusan. A peepusan. Good. Do you know how we say make love? Uh, Happy hopper. Help. That was uncertain. Tweet us your answer at C A R N Y Couch. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. Let's get back to our discussion of In the Loop. Yeah, do we have anything more to say? Well, uh, Tess? Um, I actually did kind of want to mention the scene um, with. Mention it! Where. Thanks. Where James Gandolfini and um, uh, what was his character's name? Oh gosh, I'm forgetting. Uh, anyway, where James Gandolfini and Peter Capaldi meet, um, what is ostensibly for the first time, and um, they kind of get in this pissing contest with each other, where they're both trying to be the biggest badass in the room, and Peter Capaldi kind of loses. Where, like, you know, this whole time, like, you've seen James Gandolfini as being, like, you know, pretty pretty jovial, pretty nice to people. Like, you know, maybe he's kind of an asshole, but he's kind of a likable asshole. Whereas, you know, Peter Capaldi just walks in the room and just shuts people down. Like, even people who think that they can take it, like, can't look him in the eye. Like, the, the one, what's the, the black-haired lady's name? Oh, uh, Judy. Judy, Judy, like, you know, tells him, like, your swearing doesn't impress me. And then he comes out and swears at her and she, like, can't look at him. She's, like, you know, turning her face away. She can't really, she can't really handle it. So they, like, get in this, like, match with each other when they meet with each other. <laughs> and um, Peter Capaldi kind of loses. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it's the first time you see him, like, that. you, you kind of get the sense that they maybe have heard of each other and sort of have, like, a grudging respect for each other. But Peter Capaldi kind of leaves the room with his tail between his legs. And, like, I kind of really love that scene. And I wanted to, you know, see what you well, guys yeah. thought well, and talk about like that. When, it's kind of <laughs> when he talks about the, uh, when he talks to the guy and goes, like, fuck you, you fucking balls. Like, lick my balls, you fucking ball sack. And he just turns around and runs away. Except he's not running away. He's, he's running because he's trying he's to get to the meeting. He's running because he has a thing to get to. I, I know, but he never... He's not like, he's worried about that one particular American douchebag. Throughout the film, he particularly hides behind his words and basically just says shit to people and then kind of turns away from them as if, you uh, know... As I don't if, really agree with that. He's, he's completely aggressive. 
Yeah, he's completely aggressive, and then after he's delivered his punch and he sees their face flinch, he turns his head away every time. No, he very, he very much. I think I kind of agree with Rob in a way. Like, not you don't see him do that every scene. Like, he's very he's aggressive very much, but like he also is the kind of aggressive that like you know says his punchline and goes fuck you, Ron Weasley, and then just leaves the room, like leaves everyone stunned and wants to not have to confront the idea that he just said what he said. So, like, there's there's a little bit I, of that, and then there's a little bit of... I think it's more because if people come back of, at him, he'll have to keep going. Yeah. And he doesn't want to dig himself into a deep hole. He just knows that he can control the... Like, it's It's, it's like leaving on your high point. all the time. Yeah, it's leaving on your exactly. high point. It's just like, I just scored a point, I'm out. I'm Nobody leaving. can fucking say anything because they're stunned that I just said what I said. I believe that there is some of that in his character, yes. There's definitely some of that. Well, what I'd say is, uh, what I like about that scene with Gandolfini is it also goes right from there to his uh, emasculation by Beric, which is, I'd say, the, the even bigger humiliation is when Beric, in front of his staff, basically calls Tucker out as being small and saying, you know, in spite of all your bluster, your prime minister's having you do work for me. Like, you're helping me like you're a nobody and so the two follow each other and i think and this is what i really respect about the movie is being more than just empty comedy is there is consequence because the only thing that the tucker character has to lose he doesn't really have much of a stake in how things go he doesn't seem to care if they go to war or not Mm -hmm. but he does care about his pride and as rob said he does care about getting out of the room and being the victor each time so we get a couple of scenes following one another where that's being questioned And the eventual tragedy is that goads him into making the decision that helps what I'd call the antagonists in the movie. So, you know, it's it's nice organic script writing. Rob's doing a nice impression of a ball sack right now. (laughs) (laughs) It doesn't work as well because my face isn't as bad as James Gandolfini's. Uh, Listeners, let me know on what you think about my impression of a ball sack a la James Gandolfini's impression on our Twitter feed, C-A-R-N-Y Couch, or our Facebook page. Oh, Tenerous are we going to post your... F- Let's get our faces up there doing ball sack faces. Uh, okay, nice. we'll, we will post a picture of each of us doing ball sack faces on our uh, Twitter, our Facebook, Carnivorous Couch, and our website, carnivoruscouch.com. Yeah, can I also just say about this movie, because, uh, all right, James Gandolfini passed away this year, very sad. Um, immensely talented actor. And I feel like this... 55, right? Yeah, heart attack. Oh. Same age as uh, Alexi, actually, my friend. Uh, yeah. 55's too young. Don't die at 55, people. That's a bad idea. But yeah, no, Do I, more shit. I feel like Gandolfini was getting into this renaissance for him that I really liked, where he was playing kind of... I don't want to say more subtle because Tony Soprano's a really subtle character, a great character, but like he was getting into this mode of playing more normal people, but he has such intelligence and wit about him that he can actually make just normal people interesting. And I'm thinking of his performance this year too in Enough Said where you know he he very well might get a posthumous supporting actor nomination and I kind of hope it so. happens. He was for really him. good and he was very funny in that. It wasn't a great film, but um he was very very funny in that. He's very good. All right. Well, thanks for your uh, thoughts on uh, James Gandolfini, Brady. You know, I, I just... He's also Tony fucking Soprano. He's Tony fucking Soprano, and that's so grandiose. And I, I'm just happy for him that in the later stage of his career, he started showing this much more restrained sensibility. 
And that he really had something intelligent to bring to that as well. So That's why 55 is too young. Yeah, much too young. Uh, let's go do our rank it, bitch, for this week. And uh, we'll go ahead and have a good time afterwards deciding uh, what we're going to watch next week. See you in a second. Okay, we're doing something kind of interesting this time. Well, I mean, I find it interesting because I came up with it. I like it. It uh, <laughs> shakes things up. Yeah, so what we're doing is uh, we're picking one uh, TV show uh, per decade, and then we're going to rank them. And so we pick them. I picked mine kind of willy-nilly. I think Brady might have put a lot of thought into it. Oh, I, d- sure. I tried to. And then uh, now we're going to rank them. So uh, we're starting from the 50s and ending in the 10s. So 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, 10s. Yep. All right. So uh, number seven, Brady, what's yours? All right, number seven. Uh, this is a great show, and uh, I love these guys, this entire cast of character. I love their anarchic spirit. Uh, but 1970s The Muppet Show is my number seven, coming in the lowest place. But, hey, it, it's an awesome show, and I wish we had more shows like that with that kind of variety show spirit. A lot of the times variety show is a dirty word for good reason. But The Muppet Show is an example of that done right. So, yeah, it's it's a great show. That might be better than the willy-nilly 1970s one I picked up, which was a, a Dragnet. I see. I've never seen Dragnet. I, I used to watch it uh, when I got to stay up. Like, my mom would forget that I was still up because I'd be, like, lying on the living room floor under the coffee table watching Nick at Night. And then mm-hmm. she'd be, like, doing laundry or some mom sort of thing. And then she'd be like, hey, you're not in bed yet. I'm like, I want to see Dragnet. And then she'd go, okay. I'm like, yes, I get to stay up a half hour earlier. because, er, mm-hmm. Half hour earlier? Half hour later. Anyway, Dragnet for that reason. All right. Okay, number six. Um, okay, number six, I'm going with the 1960s, and I chose uh, Monty Python's Flying Circus. And uh, what can I say? It's, it's a great, massive volume of awesome uh, comedy set pieces. And, uh, you know, maybe some of them don't work, which is what you get with a show that has a lot of episodes. But a lot of the most famous, you know, comedic gags come from there. I think, doesn't the cheese shop come from Flying Circus? Perhaps. I don't know. Or or the uh, the great one about the, basically, the Germans trying to develop a joke so funny it kills people. That is absolutely funny. But then it totally circus. sucks. If Mama Peanut and the Baby Peanut were walking down the street... And one of them was assaulted. Peanut. <laughs> anyway. It's kind of funny. Um, okay, mine is also the 60s, and mine's Star Trek. Because right it's on. fucking Star Trek, man. No, yeah, it's That's Star Trek. Star Trek fell at number six somehow. Yeah. A lot of nerds will be trying to stab me through my eyeball with an ice pick looking thing when I'm asleep after drinking a lot of Turilium brandy. All right, Star Trek, 60s, revolutionary show. Still a franchise that's alive today. Boom. So number five, this one was hard to put this low because if what I said about Monty Python's Flying Circus is true, about it being kind of this large volume of really classic comedy, this one is a Bible of storytelling. I mean, essentially a lot of the episodes in 1950s The Twilight Zone 
are so good, such muscular storytelling premises that they're better in their 15 minute form than most Hollywood blockbusters are. Like they have more plot, more interesting, snappy, dynamic, organic plot than most of Hollywood can muster these days. And there are countless just episode after episode of some of the just neatest, most muscular storytelling ever. And uh, yeah, it's just a great, a great tome of how to tell a story economically. All right, then. Uh, my number five. Ooh, this was really hard to put this low, but uh, The Wire from the aughts. Ooh, five. I mean, I'm, I'm sorry it's a very well-made show, but it's not my favorite, favorite show. It's, no, no, it's very good, but I'm doing this based on how much I like these. So, The Wire, incredible show, very well-made. Uh, David Simon deserves ten Emmys, one yep. for each season. And then one per each season again. <laughs> Five seasons? Yeah. Okay. All right, number four. Uh, this guy's a new kid on the block because uh, Rob and I are doing the 10s, the 2010s. And this will probably come as no surprise. Mine is Breaking Bad. Uh, you know, I think it still needs time to age, but it's just dense and rich it's, uh, I think it's an insightful parable about the human capacity for radical, dark changes. I think it's as timely as the 2008 market crash and as timeless as greed itself. Man, Breaking Bad isn't even on my list. Yeah, no, I just, it, I it love it. It couldn't it's, be. It's just it's such an uncompromising journey into just complete darkness. Well, because my number one hits the aughts and the tens. Okay. But I wanted the wire on there. So that knocks out the ops, so then my favorite show has to go to the 10s. Right. So. Anyway, yeah, it's it's a great show. All right. uh, So my number four, and I can't believe this is as low as it is, too, but uh, from the 80s, Star Trek The Next Generation. And yes, I know it bled into the 90s, but I can count it as either, and this is what works best for me. So enough of that. Anti-Ferengi bullshit. Yeah, the Ferengis were prominent in the first couple seasons. Anyway, uh, amazing show. Kind of shaped my childhood. I really love the idea of a society where money isn't a factor and we can feed everybody because I feel like we can do that now. And we're just not because we're stupid. So anyway, um, Star Trek Next Generation. All right. Uh, Number three, I'm going with the 1990s. This one was tough because, you know, you have a lot of great shows in the 90s. Seinfeld, you know, was definitely in the conversation. But hard to bump it. I, I know. It's hard to bump, man. But I, I got to go with The Sopranos. Uh, you know, this was a total sea change in terms of what televised drama could be. We're still essentially living in the post-Sopranos world. If you want to give a show credit for making these dense, very complex, ambiguous characters and anti-heroes, too. Anti-heroes like Walter White. Or here, I would say, because of Tony Soprano. Uh, And so, yeah, it's just, like, yeah, it it really just contains so many levels. It's funny and dark and scary and sad and just, yeah, it's it signaled the charge for rich, well-written stories to take over. All right, my number three harkens back to the 1950s. Uh, It is The Twilight Zone. Well picked. Because that... TV series is probably the most influential TV series ever. I yeah. mean, there were 
there are references to it constantly. People still reference it just in pop culture. Like, you'll have a morning show where people go like, you know, like that Twilight Zone episode. And that was literally 60 years ago. Yep. <laughs> and it... <laughs> I mean, well, not literally, because that would mean exactly 60 years. And that could happen, but you know what I'm saying. Right. It was literally over 50 years ago. <laughs> How about that? It was figuratively 60 years ago. 60.27 years ago. Um, figuratively speaking. So anyway, uh, kind of just amazingly influential. There's a parody of it in every cartoon comedy. Mm-hmm. I, yep. it, like, it's, yeah. <laughs> There's no getting around it. It's something that every it will touch everybody's lives for the next hundred years. Oh right? yeah, I agree. It's and Rod Serling's long gone, right? Um, I don't know. I think so. I think he died a couple years ago. Okay. All right. Uh, no, my number two. While we're on the subject of things that are unbelievably influential, uh, and I technically get to say this, even though this show has had its foot in many decades at this point. It started in the 1980s and 89, I believe, and it's The Simpsons, and there's just no... I am one of the people who don't really like the direction the show's gone kind of since the 2000s-ish, but the influence that it had in its beginning, and that it still continues to have in a way, is just something you can't overlook. The fact is, I think I can name a bunch of people who use dough just in everyday language, myself included. Uh, it's a show that's shaped cultural conversation, uh, changed the way comedy was. It also brought up huge comedic presences like Conan O'Brien, uh, James L. Brooks. Just, yeah, it, seriously, so influential. Quick correction. Rod Serling died at the age of 50 in 1975. Oh, wow. Okay. That's crazy. That's crazy young for him to die. All right. Well, just saying. Yeah, so number two, The Simpsons, and uh, it was hard to leave it. As low, like it's, I think it's seriously in the conversation for best show ever made. Um, and when it was really hitting, it's some of the most brilliantly written comedy I can name. That's your number two, eh? That's my number two. My number two is also from the 90s. Oh, wait, you did use 80s for your 80s, yeah. Yeah, tweaking out that little. Yeah, well, <laughs> Star Trek, same thing for me. Um, 90s, X Files. All right, right on. Had to be, had to be. I, <laughs> I love that show. I've been rewatching it actually. I took a short break to rewatch all of Breaking Bad, and now I'm taking a short break to rewatch all of House, for I don't know why. But, yeah. I'll I'll be getting back to X Files soon. Okay, so that brings us to our number ones. What's your number one show, Brady? Okay, my number one show is from the 2000s. It's not a surprise to anyone who knows me. And I had to think long and hard about this. And I, you know, it's hard in the face of something like The Simpsons that's so huge and has spanned so many decades. Like, that influence is Better be the wire. pretty earth-shattering. And so, yeah, it is The Wire, which right. is a much shorter show because it's it's five seasons, each 12 episodes. So that's 60 episodes in total. It's not huge when you consider it in the face of something like Twilight Zone or Simpsons that's been creating, pumping out influential storytelling for decades, but it's so muscular and measured. And most of all, you know, as someone who practices law and as just a concerned citizen, I think it's such a nice mixture of utopian hope and then just a, such a good examination of why that probably can't be. Like this, if we could make our laws like this, this would be the way to do it. But, 
you know, as McNulty says in that first season, that can't happen because everyone's invested in the system the way it is. Everyone stays friends. Everyone has a future, as he says. And so, yeah, it's just it's so sad and hopeful at the same time. And, you know, I think it's just inspiring and it's so well acted as well. All right, blowhard. Keep talking. No, yeah, that's <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ. Like, I just say, like, this is my pick and then just leave it up to the ghosts. And my pick, my number one is Futurama because it's my favorite show. It's uh, something that's just been with me since I kind of became a fully actualized human being, and then I can't let go of it. And they better goddamn bring it back a third time, because I'm going to stab somebody if it's not back on the air by 2020. Mm-hmm. Which is leaving a pretty big window. All right, you got seven fucking years to get it back on the air. I don't care if it's in DVD in releases or what. Time for the next what. list. Yes, exactly. We'll make a new list. 2020, and I better be able to claim it as current. Mm-hmm. So that's our rank it, bitch. Bring it back by 2020, bitch. And uh, please, thanks for listening. Back with the show. Rank it, bitch. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. We're back. And I'm doing it this time because, damn it, it's my garage and... I'm the one who has to spend the most time doing this shit, so I get to say hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Hi, Brady. Hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. So we're going to decide what movie we're going to do next week. The Iron Giant. <laughs> Tess always wants to do The Iron Giant. Last week we were talking about uh, The Bad Sleepwell. Which is, yeah, the well that if you drink from it, you sleep really badly. Well, that's David's suggestion. If Shailen wants to defend it, he's got to get in the studio. And there's also Black Dahlia, because I want to do De Palma. Also, something I was thinking about halfway through the last podcast, and I think you can hear me saying about it, is that we should, uh, for comedies, next time we're going to do a comedy, and we Mm -hmm. definitely need a comedy, we should do uh, Harlem Nights. Because I fucking love that movie. What's that? That's um, the uh, Eddie Murphy... Um, smuggling cocaine story. He blows the pinky toe off the woman's foot and blah, 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 blah. It's kind of like a period piece comedy. Uh, police detective, hard-boiled drug dealer, blah, 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 in Harlem. Huh, okay. It's pretty great, actually. Or, I mean, it was pretty great when I was 12. So, I mean, it's got to still be great now, right? Right. I mean, seriously. Yeah, man. Seriously. What, now you want me to suggest a movie? Fine. All right. Uh, you know the what? Lion. The Lion? Space Jam. No, the li- <laughs> Space the Jam. The Panther. The Leopard King. Space Jam. What? Space, Space Jam, all right. Tess Bill Murray ices Space his Jam. knees and can't go out on the court. Got it. Space Jam. Bill Murray ices his knees. That's what I remember. You Space Jam is the best movie in the world. Just because... Um, just because its sequel came out this year and was great, and Space Jam has a sequel. No. Yeah, I was gonna ask the same question. No, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna say Before Sunrise because I think eventually we need to get you to see those movies. All right, that's Link Letter. Link Letter, yeah. I really want to do De Palma. That's just my suggestion. Let's watch School of Rock. That's not De Palma. That's Link Letter. How about the Scarface remake? Scarface original, we could watch Howard Hughes. I'll watch 
I'll watch the Scarface Which original. One? What about the remake? Well, isn't the original... Um, Howard Hughes? No, the original is not Howard Hughes. The original is... Uh, whatever. No, no. The original is that screwball guy, right? Howard that's Hawks. H- that's Howard, Howard Hawks. No, no, it's Howard Hughes. I think it's Howard... Oh, maybe it's yeah. Howard Hughes. It's Howard, produ- Howard Hughes produced Howard Hawks directed. I think so. Yeah, I think that's how it works. But he but he produced and directed Hell's Angels, right? Howard I Hughes. Yes. Did. Yeah, okay. Understood. Uh, we could do either of those. I really want to do De Palma. Let's do Blowout. 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 Tell us about Blowout. Blowout is the one where Travolta's a uh, sound recording guy and it's kind of hokey and the whole thing kind of follows a uh, horror movie mentality. Um, and he records this like tire getting shot out. And we saw it in Techno Thrillers class. Or I saw it in Techno Thrillers class. Pr- Tess was in the same class but a different semester. Um, and thus didn't see it for her curriculum, but I did. Did you see the parallax view in yours? No, we saw scenes from the parallax view, which is actually really cool, but I haven't seen the whole thing. Yeah. Um, okay. It's a techno thriller. He uses technology in order to solve a mystery that nobody else believes him. It's kind of like a, it's kind of like a noir, but not really. I would put it, put it in the noir category somewhere on the spectrum of post noir and something like that. Of course you would. I love noir, man. I know. So anyway, he tries to discover this all by using his hypercardioid microphone and trying to figure out what happened via the sound, and he puts pictures to it and so forth and so on, and it's just a big deal. So, um, yeah. I think we should watch that. Uh, we should watch what's okay. that one with Gene Hackman. The conversation. Ooh, that's a good one too. The conversation would be so good to watch for that same reason. About like sound effect and choice. Yeah, we'll get to that. Oh my nope, god. I'm executive decision. We I had to pick oh I had god. to sit through the fucking leopard. We're watching blowout next week. No. Carnivorous couch. Shit happens once a week. It swallows us for two hours when we try to sleep. It forces us to watch a film about which we then speak. Carnivorous Couch With Brady and Rob First I swallow, now I'm dirty. What the fuck? I'm gonna kill ya. <laughs>